Think about the um, kings of Judah with me for just a moment. You know, there were uh, famously good kings of Judah, and then there were those that were evil. But the thing that's really confusing when you read the, uh, you know, in Second Chronicles and so forth, other places about the kings of Judah, is that there were some that started well, and their shelf life didn't prove to be quite what you would want. They sort of rotted uh, after making a very good start. Let me give you three really quick. Joash, Amaziah, and Uzziah. So Joash starts out really good. You remember him, the boy king, Joash, and, and uh, he's under the tutelage of a priest by the name of Jehoiada, so all is going smoothly and well, and there's kind of a revival even under Joash among the people, and the temple's rebuilt, and various things happen. But then at the end of his life, when Jehoiada dies, he actually ends up putting Jehoiada's son, one of the priests, to death, and he ends up being himself delivered over to death in battle. So that's Joash. Good start, bad finish. Uh, Amaziah. Amaziah started out fairly well, not with a whole heart, the scripture says, but, um, but he did go into battle and defeat the the Edomites, which, uh, you know, that's always a good thing, beat the Edomites. Uh, anyway, after, but when he defeated the Edomites, he brought their gods back with him. Always a bad move. He ends up becoming an idolater, ends up picking a fight with the king of Israel, goes into battle against him, gets taken into captivity, and uh, ends, ends up dying. Yeah. And then there's Uzziah. You know, in the year... King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord that for Isaiah 6. That's the Uzziah we're talking about. And, uh, and Uzziah, again, another good start. Good, good. But, and he doesn't go quite as evil, but he becomes proud in his heart. And he's the one, you know the story, where he goes in to the temple to burn incense to the Lord, which was a, a job strictly re, uh, forbidden for anyone other than the Levites. And he goes in because of the pride of his own heart. It's like, well, yeah, I'm the king. God's going to let me do this. And God struck him with leprosy. Couldn't go back into the temple again the rest of his life. Couldn't even mingle with the people. He had to live separately. So, yeah, there's three kings who started out well and more or less succumbed to a kind of spiritual rot. I'm using that term today. That's not directly in the passage we're looking at, but I think it kind of sums up where we don't want to be. Does anybody want to rot? I mean, I accept that I will rot. I'm kind of maybe in stages of it already, but I, I, it's not something we're looking forward to. If you buy a house, some of you are buying homes, you're, you're trying to make sure it's not already you know, in some stage of, of rot. And spiritually, that's what really Paul is dealing with here as he speaks to the Colossians. He's trying to head off the possibility of the Colossians having begun well, but somehow not ending well. And so he's, he's helping them to rot, sort of rot-proof their faith. That's what we're going to talk about today. Seek a rot-resistant faith in Christ. How many are interested in that? Want, how many want a rot-resistant faith? You wouldn't be here if you didn't have faith in Christ, would you? I mean, you might have wandered in, I suppose, just kind of curious. But most of us here want to live out our faith and want to remain in the faith and so, on, so forth and finish well. Basically, I kind of look at seven uh, ways that Paul gives us here to avoid rot. First of all, have a disciplined faith in Christ. Have a disciplined faith in Christ. Paul says, For though I am absent in body, 
Yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now, Paul's not right there with him. We know that. He's in prison. And he's never actually, to our knowledge, been physically in their presence. He wasn't the one that brought the gospel uh, to them. Epaphras was. Whether Paul is saying that he spiritually, when he says in spirit, and that he sees their, their, their good order and firmness, I don't know if Paul's actually, I think Paul's using a figure of speech there. Perhaps, I mean, he's an apostle, who knows. Um, you know, Paul did have to send people to various places to get reports. So I'm, I'm assuming he did not have a spiritual uh, gift of being able to literally like be there and see everything going on. I think he's going off of reports. But he likes what he's hearing. He's, like, he's liking what he sees spiritually speaking. He speaks of their good order and the firmness of their faith in Christ. Those two words could kind of be put together as more or less one sort of thing. Both of those words, order and firmness, come from a military kind of usage. In the Old Testament, the Greek Old Testament, this word was used in the book of Numbers many times to describe the order in the camp of Israel. How many have a study Bible and you've seen a page where it shows the, the tribes of Israel camped around the tabernacle and you had three, three tribes, three tribes, three tribes, three tribes, east, west, north, you know that? Yeah? You knew they did that, right? Okay, I didn't think I was breaking new information there. But anyway, so order, so there's an orderliness, but then there's this firmness. And you put that together, and it, it is a picture of, of discipline. Of a, you, you think of a group of soldiers who are orderly. They're not breaking rank. They're not straying. They're not getting a, a, away from, from the configuration that they're meant to remain in. They're staying orderly, and they're firm. They're able to push back the enemy. How many remember the movie, what, 300, The 300? Yes, about the, the stand of the Spartans at Thermopylae against the, the overwhelming Persian army. And uh, it's a beautiful picture. I kind of feel like, I, I don't think Paul's picturing Thermopylae necessarily, but I think that's the kind of picture he has, you know? You got the Spartan, they're only 300, they're in that little pass, this huge Persian army, and they're so disciplined. They're brave, yes. But they're not brave like, you know, some Wild West gunslinger standing alone, you know, taking on the whole town. I mean, they are a unit. They're functioning like, like, like a well-honed, well-oiled uh, machine, aren't they? They're standing there. They're like shoulder to shoulder. When the command is given, they, they bring their shields together, and they're like one unit. And the Persians yell at them, Spartans, lay down your weapons. Do, do you know the line? <laughs> the, the Spartans say, Persians, come and get them. Right? And I think that's sort of the, I mean, I, I, I think that's kind of the picture here uh, of the church. Paul sees the Colossians like a well-oiled machine at this point in terms of, of their profession of faith and holding their faith in Jesus Christ. What they've learned, what they believe, what they're holding forth. They're, they're standing up against the false teachers. And that's a good thing. Discipline is a good thing. I think some Christians think that the church is supposed to be this wild, crazy thing where anything goes. And it's not. It's not. There is an order, even to the Corinthians that were really into all kinds of excesses. You know, Paul speaks of the, of the value 
of things being done in order. The church, a disciplined church, uh, produces disciplined disciples, and disciplined disciples are those that join together in disciplined churches where we hold the shield of faith, and you know we're standing strong together, our faith, our mutual faith, holding together, holding that wall with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and all of that in an orderly and, and firm, entrenched way. Instead of a church being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, which exists, I mean, I've seen it, um, churches that just blow this way and that way from one moment to the next, are, we should strive, we should pray that the church remain disciplined, that we have good order and firmness in the gospel. We want to be, uh, we want to be Spartans in that sense. We want to be a lean, mean fighting machine here at Grace. Amen? Because that, for me, when I look at this, when I look at what Paul's saying in the context, it seems to me like this is a good way for the church long-term to prevent rot, to prevent the rot of our faith. Secondly, receive Christ Jesus as Lord. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. There are a lot of different ways of talking about coming to faith in Christ, which we, in the book of Acts, you may remember really early in the book of Acts study, that we looked at so many different ways that Luke used to, to talk about coming to faith. Interesting, I'm going to step on toes here. I'm going to step on toes all day long, I'm sure, but... Um, you know one way that's never mentioned in Scripture for coming to faith? It's a popular one. Asking Jesus into your heart. Yeah. Sorry. It's true. Nowhere in Scripture does it use that phrase. I mean, there's the passage in Revelation that's misused to mean that. Nowhere. And, and is, does that mean that you're a heretic if you express it that way? No, but there are so many good biblical ways of actually talking about conversion, of obeying the faith, coming to the faith, uh, um, receiving, receiving Christ. We talk about that. John mentions it. He says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And here Paul is speaking in that same language. He's speaking of receiving. And he says, Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord. When they came to faith in Christ, Having repented and put their faith in Christ, they were, in effect, receiving Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, what does that mean? You say, well, it's obvious, isn't it? Well, there's a couple of possibilities. And I think both are inherent, but one is more dominant in, in the... When you say you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, that's a, that's a phrase or a word used in the Old Testament to speak of Yahweh. So when the early Christians said Jesus Christ is Lord, they were, they were making an affirmation about the deity of Christ. At the same time, I think the more dominant meaning here in the text is when he says receiving Christ Jesus Lord, that they had received him as the master and Lord over the church and over their lives. I think that fits the context quite well. A rot-resistant Faith remains healthy in the face of false doctrine because one holds Christ to be the Lord of the universe, the Lord of the church, and therefore it is what he says in the church that we should adhere to and hold to and never stray from when false teachers come along. Let me take it back to the Spartans for a moment. 
Do you think there was one kind of uh, dopey Spartan when the Persians said, Spartans, throw down your weapons, who went clunk? I, that might have been in an outtake from the film. I don't know. Um, my guess is they all kept holding on to their weapons. Why? Do you ever play Simon Says? Does anybody want to admit now that you were really bad at Simon Says? Just go ahead. Tell it all, brothers, sisters. Anyone really bad at I'm so Yeah, okay. Okay, that's, that's, that's an honest person right there. Um, I always thought that was a kind of a weird game. Like, all you have to do is pay attention, and if they say Simon says, then you do it, and if Simon doesn't say it, then you don't do it. It seems so radically simple. Would that the church understood this. If the Lord says it, okay, then we do it. If the Lord doesn't say it, if it's coming in and it's conflicting with, with what Christ says, we shouldn't do it. How many? That's very, very simple, isn't it? Very, very simple. It seems like obvious stuff. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So he's Lord. We've received Christ Jesus as Lord. He says, we hear his voice. He says, go there. We follow. We follow. What does he say about the other voices? He says, a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. I love that. Isn't that a, that's kind of a simple, rot-resistant plan for the church. Now, I know you're looking at, at all this stuff, and, and you know, you're trying to get ready to call the next pastor when that time comes. And, and I just would suggest this might be one thing you could tell the guy. Like, you know, what we really want to do is keep Christ as Lord. We want to, now that, just hear me out, we want to do what he says and not do what he doesn't say. That's sort of a good plan, don't you think? I think that's an excellent, an excellent plan. We don't listen to the false teachers. If something comes along where Christ is not the focus, if, he's not, if his lordship isn't recognized, if it draws us away from the absolute lordship of Christ, we want nothing to do with it. That's rot. Walk in Christ. Walk in Christ. Uh, still verse 6, it says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. What does it mean to walk, scripturally speaking? Is it just taking, taking steps? Is that, what, do you, what do you take it to mean? When you say walk in, it means how you live your life. It's the manner in which you live. And what we're told here is the manner in which we are to live is to be in Christ. Well, let me suggest a few things that that would mean. First of all, it means we live and believe what the Scripture teaches about Christ. It means that we live by the gospel, the gospel of his grace. Having begun in grace, we don't suddenly switch to works uh, you know, in order to get us the rest of the way there. We begin in grace, the grace of Christ, and we continue in that. That's walking in the gospel, walking in Christ. It means in the context that we are living in Christ and not led astray by the false teachers. So if man-made wisdom, man-made tradition comes along and says, yeah, Christ, gospel, okay, sure, sure, sure. But what you really need to do is you need to follow this dietary prescription we have over here. Or when you go to your prayer closet, you need to hit yourself a few times to get your body in submission or whatever it might be, something like that. And we say, no, thank you. That, that, that's drawing us away from the pure walk in Christ. It also means, as we saw back in 1 
10, chapter 1, verse 10, we are to walk in a way that is worthy of the Lord, in a way that is pleasing to Him. So when we go away from any sort of man-made tradition, strict, rule-bound, hide-bound legalism, the opposite of that is not to then engage in sin so that grace might abound, but rather to walk in Christ is then to live lives that bring Him glory. For his sake, for Christ, that's to walk in Christ. So walk in Christ. If you want to understand the real safeguard against rot, spiritual rot, it always comes back to Christ, doesn't it? Isn't that funny? It always comes back to him. How are we to live? Christ. <laughs> what are we to live for? Christ. What's our faith based, faith based on? Christ. Okay, root yourself in Christ. Now, again, this is, this is in past uh, tense. It's, it's, it's uh, something which has already been done. Well, if it's already been done, then, then what ought we do with that information? Why even bother with it if it's past tense? Well, the instruction here is to walk in Christ, but it's walking in Christ in light of the fact that we have been rooted in him. So how are we to live our lives? How are we to walk? Well, we're to continue in that way where we are really consciously rooted in Christ. I kind of love uh, the way Paul mixes metaphors. Have you ever noticed that Paul will mix metaphors? Freshman English teacher, I'll tell you what, man. Janet Flesky would have flunked you on that one if you'd mixed your metaphors, I'll bet. But um, <laughs> did I hear an amen there? <laughs> but, but Paul does it all the time. Paul does it all the time, and, and I love, actually, the fact that he does it here. You know, he's talking about being rooted. Now, what, what imagery do you have when you're talking about being rooted? A tree, a plant, you know, you think Psalm 1, that, that the blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. He's like a, he's like a tree planted by, by streams of water. You have that sort of picture, abiding in Christ. It's an organic, uh, living kind of image there. At the deepest level, our lives are, are on Christ. And he, Paul's going to immediately switch to a building metaphor. Like the very next thing out of his breath is going to be built up. And that's a word that, that, that implies the temple. You know, that we're, that we're be a living temple, that we're being built into Christ on, on a foundation. But what do roots and foundations have in common? They're, they're below the surface, aren't they? They're that, they're that which give, it either gives the tree or the structure. It gives its stability. Both are, find their support and their life in those things. So as we live a, lot, a, a rot-free, Christ-centered faith, it's always got to be consciously or unconsciously or both founded on Christ. That's where our support comes from. How do we remain firm? How do we remain resistant? How does that good order and firmness of our faith in Christ, how does that, how does that remain robust? It, re, it remains robust as long as we are consciously always returning and, and, and building upon that foundation. Imagine a builder laying a good foundation. Now, in Kansas, it's not quite like Minnesota. Minnesota, to lay a foundation, you have to go... I can't remember. I think it was six feet down or some crazy amount. Like here it's 18 inches for the footers or some 
two foot or something like that. But imagine a builder coming along and they get the footers down in there nice and deep, just exactly according to code, and they get the, and they get the slab poured upon it, and so they've got a great foundation. Imagine that builder then just having like a brain burp and, and building the whole, like he comes in to do all the framing and he frames the whole house next to the foundation, right on the uneven ground. Like he just puts it right there. You're like, well, that would be, you, you, something bad's going on with that guy's brain. There is a lack of clarity with that guy's brain. Something's off. Like how on earth could you even imagine that would be ridiculous? What Paul seems to be saying here is, hey, Christians at Colossae, I know, I know that you have, that you have a foundation laid, that your roots are in Christ, you are rooted in him. But if you're going to stay safe, and live a Christian life that is rock-resistant, then you have to continue building on that. That has to be your basis, your salvation, your joy, your peace, your hope. Christian, today, where is your hope? You have one foundation. You, have, you are rooted in Christ, but in the ongoing day-to-day, is that where your hope remains? Or is that just an afterthought because most of the hope that you have right now is all centered on this world and, and what you can accumulate here in this place, this brief life? Build on Christ. And that's the next point there. Be built up in Christ. Be built up in him. The rooted part's accomplished. We talked about that. Um, we are to reckon with that. We are to continue in that. Built up, though, is actually in the present tense in the text. It's a present participle. And so it it speaks to something, something that has happened that we are to, in an ongoing way, continue in. We are to be building ourselves up in Christ. We in our individual lives, but also maybe more importantly, especially as a church, we are to be built up in Christ. Paul uses this language and mixes the metaphors again over in Ephesians chapter 4 where, where he talks about the body being built up, growing into maturity unto the full measure of Christ. He speaks of, of, the temp, of the body being a temple joined together, each member working together, building itself up in love. Here we're in the context of being built up to withstand false teaching, and he tells us that we are to keep building up in Christ. So the interesting thing is here, we're built on Christ. We are being held together by the mortar in Christ, together in Christ, being built. And what's the final outcome? The temple of his body, which is Christ. We're built on Christ. We're built in Christ. We're being built up into Christ. It's, it, it, it all comes back to Christ. Seems to me the only hitch in the get-along is one that you've probably heard before. How many have heard, because I've said it, it's, it's a cliche about living sacrifices. What, is, what do they say about li- the problem with living sacrifices? They always crawl off the altar. Or at least they could crawl off the altar. That's the problem. Well, here's the funny thing. Paul doesn't say living stones, but Peter uses that phrase. And we are, after all, alive, and we are stones being built, but at the same time, we are living stones. And check your heart, Christian. Check your heart. 
if you're just one brick lying on the ground somewhere, can you fairly be called a temple? Yes, I know the scripture speaks of our individual life in, some, in one place as being a temple unto the Lord. But it also speaks of the church as the temple. So it's a both, it's a both and, isn't it? What if you have ten bricks but no mortar? What have you got? You got a stack of ten bricks. What if you have a thousand bricks with, with no mortar and no builder? What do you have? You have a big pile of bricks. But you don't have a building. You, you don't have a temple that's being built unto God. Christian, your life, I'm just going to say this, your life cannot glorify God under normal circumstances. Unless, unless, you, you know, unless you're Robinson Crusoe and you wash up on an island and you're alone. We're not meant to live alone as Christians. We are meant to be built up in the body of Christ. You say, well, I'm part of the mystical, universal body of Christ. Isn't that true, Pastor? Yes, yes. But what is the local manifestation of that body? What it, there's proof in the pudding. What, what shows and, and indicates and flows out of that universal body, it's being in the local body. The Christian needs to be built up in Christ, built on the foundation of Christ. And when we come together on that word as a temple, we are in Christ. And we need that if we are going to... How do you stand against rot? You know, in that, in that movie, The 300, it's not called The One. I mean, we get into some outlandish hero movies, but I mean, I'm, 300 was good. Uh, one, that's just, yeah, that's just a massacre at that point. We need the one another. Be established in the faith. Be established in the faith. Middle of verse 7, it says, and established in the faith just as you were taught. Now, I seem to be saying a lot of things to get people cranky today. So I may, I may be doing that here as well. I don't know. There are, throughout my whole life, I've heard Christians say things like, well, people get too hung up on doctrine. Let's not get hung up on doctrine. Let's just, let's just be a loving, unified church and, and forget the doctrine. Why does, why, does it, why does doctrine have to matter? Do you know what doctrine means? Teaching. It means the teaching. <laughs> yeah, if you, in, the, in the church, there is that which we hold to, that which is taught. And any place through history that I've ever been able to observe historically, like in books and such, any place where they rejected teaching as a core aspect of how the church is founded, those churches have, have either ceased to exist or gone extraordinarily liberal. Take the Quakers, for instance. Take the Quakers. Like there were two streams within, within the Friends movement. There was one that, that had silent meetings where they would all sit in a room. There was no doctrine. There was no preacher. Each person just spoke as they felt led by the Holy Spirit, which sounds all very spiritual, doesn't it? And then they had the less spiritual ones who had pastors and preachers, you know, that whole thing. Guess which one of those went extraordinarily liberal and far away from the Scripture? Yeah, the, the quiet ones, the silent ones, yeah. 
Isn't that, isn't that strange? When Paul says established in the faith as you were taught, he's talking about actual doctrine. He's talking about the content of the faith. Do you see the importance of that to Paul and, and how routinely you see it in the scripture? Why did he go back through all the churches strengthening them? How was he strengthening them? Now, I know you think he was hugging them and that that was just giving them a good, good pep talk and a good feeling. No, he went back teaching them, teaching them, strengthening them, encouraging them with words. Why did Paul at Troas preach from dusk till dawn and basically kill poor Eutychus? You know, you remember him? He got so bored, he fell asleep and fell out of the third floor window. And, and, and yeah, Paul had to raise him from the dead. Word of warning, I can't do that. So if, if you fall out of your pew today and die, uh, we'll pray for you. But, um, yeah, <laughs> don't, I don't have that particular, uh, particular gift. But this was Paul's passion, was to preach. Faith here does not mean, when it t- the faith as you were taught, it's not talking about our subjective trusting in Christ. There are verses that use it that way. That's not how it's being used here. Because the other meaning in the New Testament of the word faith is the content of the faith, the content of the gospel faith. Years ago when the Evangelical Free Church formed in 1950, it didn't form out of nowhere. There was a movement of, uh, among the Scandinavian people who had immigrated to the U.S. God had moved in their midst. There had been revival and so forth. And so it wasn't like they hadn't already existed in little independent churches, but they decided they were going to form the EFCA, which is, for those who don't know, it's part of the denomination we're part of. The EFCA decided when they formed that they needed a statement of faith, which I think is quite wise. We have a sister denomination. You may have heard of them. They're called the Evangelical Covenant Church. Guess what they didn't think was important? A doctrinal statement. We don't need it. We don't need no stinking doctrinal statement. Come on, we're fine. We're fine. We'll do the, here's our doctrinal statement right here, the Bible. That's our only doctrinal statement. Um, guess which one of those churches has gone liberal? And I know there are good Evangelical Covenant churches out there, but the point is there was nothing No agreed-upon doctrine holding them together. And so no bulwark against heresies that tried to work its way in. If you have nothing you agree upon, how, how do you hold that off? So doctrine. Finally, finally, abound in thanksgiving. Paul ends in verse 7 this way, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, you know that old thing, one of these things is not like the others. One of these things is not the same. Does this feel like it just almost is, is sort of unto itself different from the others? It, 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 it kind of seems to almost break the mold. Why, is, why does Paul say this? Well, remember that Paul started out in this text rejoicing over what he saw that was keeping the Colossians at a good place. That, that order, that discipline, that, that firmness of their faith. He starts there rejoicing. And, now, and after he has told them you know, about their confession of Christ as Lord and being rooted and built up and, and, and all of the rest of this, he finishes, I think, where he starts. He was rejoicing over that. He's basically saying, hey, if you see this as it is, this is something to rejoice in. Because everything is Christ. It's not you. It's not dependent on men. It's not, it, it is Christ. It is keeping Christ as the focus. It's a gift to us from God. 
These things that we've looked at today to prevent rot are, are the gift of God to us. Because I don't want to rot. I started out by saying, do you want to rot? I don't want to rot. Not when it comes to my faith. The other I accept. But, but I, I, I don't want to have my faith fall apart. I don't want to see the church fall apart. I want to see the church stand strong. And God's saying, it's, it's not that hard in one sense. It's holding to Christ. It's holding to the gospel. If we do that, you know, I think we picture things like this, instructions like, oh, I got to do this, I got to do that. Oh, I got to stay firm, I got to stay disciplined or whatever. And maybe, maybe we feel like somebody's swimming the English channel and that God's going, okay, here's seven things today that Jay came up with. You know, here, here's an anvil. And you're like supposed to swim the rest of the way. And No, I mean, you look at this and this is a gift of God to us, these things. This is nothing more than, than the yoke of Christ we're talking about. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Yes, there, there are things that we must do, but they're all connected with him. They're born by him. They're, they flow from his grace to us. We should be thankful. In fact, it's, we're supposed to be abounding in that thanksgiving. Do you know the difference between thanksgiving and abounding in that? I should have come up with something funny at this point. I, don't, I, don't, I, I know there's a difference. I mean, we can be, yeah, 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 I'm thankful for that. But, but he's been abounding in thanksgiving. It occurs to me that we are most vulnerable to go astray when we allow ourselves to be embittered in the church. If you want to stand firm in Christ, you need to abound in thanksgiving, you need to be, thanksgiving is one of those ways that we combat that, that bitterness that sets in. We need to give thanks to God for all he's done in our personal lives, in the prayer closet alone with him. But we, when we come together and we sing praises to him and we give thanks to him in this setting, that, that is so encouraging. And if you are a Christian and, and you're honked off at the church, or you've been hurt, or you're, do not let bitterness set into your soul and keep you away from the very means that God has ordained to strengthen you and prevent the rot from setting in. We need each other. We need each other. We need the church. We need the people of God. So go to Thanksgiving. Yes, there are hurts. Yes, there are problems. Yes, there are things that are wrong. But what can you thank God for today? There are a lot of things we can thank him for. If you don't know Christ, but you want to, um, then I'm not going to ask you to ask Jesus into your heart. Um, I'm just not going to phrase it that way. What I'm going to call you to is to repent and turn to Christ and believe upon him. Put another way, you need to receive Christ Jesus the Lord. Receive his saving work, what he did on the cross as the one and only sufficient way by which you can be brought into a relationship and reconciled with God. He is that one. He is the Savior. He is the Lord. Receive him today. 
Make him the Lord of your life. Trust him in that way. His lordship will bring you out well. His lordship may keep hearing his voice and ignoring the voice of others that draw you away. That is going to keep you from spiritual rot. Become part of a local church. You need the body of Christ. It is how, it is one of the main ways that God will keep you in the faith is the people of God. So get involved, whether it's this church, whether it's another one, but find a gospel believing church and become part of that. Let's pray. Father, we, we have seen the pattern of some who have made a good start and turned away. We don't want to be of those, Lord. We want to hear the voice of our shepherd. We want to follow him, being built upon him and, and, and strengthened in, in our faith, Lord. We want to just grow, not just individually alone, but we want to grow together as part of, of your people, as part of your church and your body. Lord, help us to see the joy in that. Help us to see how you are, are intending for us to grow together in you. And may you accomplish that good work here in our midst here at Grace, and may you accomplish it throughout Great Bend and, and throughout Kansas and the rest of the world. Lord, we, we ask that you would do that good work. And, and Lord, we pray that the gospel would not fall on deaf ears today. We pray that the gospel would fall on receptive hearts. And that hearing, they might repent and turn and receive Christ as Lord today. We ask it in his name. Amen.